It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. So, my dear friend Edward, it is always a joy to be in your presence, even if it's virtual. It's always a presence to see my empress. And that's what I call you. <laughs> in case you don't, that's what I call Oprah, the empress. And you call me the empress since we did that incredible cover in 2018. And now, was it four years ago? Already. Can you believe it? I just started at British Vogue a year in, and I was like, who is my dream cover? Oprah, and I'm going to call the Empress, and I did it, and that cover really to this day is one of my favorites. Oh, my goodness. Well, of course it's my favorite, but... (laughs) And you know what? I I usually don't respond well when people are like, Queen, this, or Granda, but when I walked in and you said Empress, I thought, I'm going to receive that. I'm actually going to receive that. And I've never experienced anything like that. Shoot, I walked in the room and there's, I don't know, I think there were like six guards in the room because there was so much jewelry. Yeah. Like like jewelry, jewelry. Jewelry, jewelry. I mean, like Van Cleve and Arpel jewelry. (laughs) And I'll tell you a story. When that cover came out, the jewelry advertising at British Folk tripled. From your cover. Really? Yes, from your cover. Wow. That's, uh, well, I'm happy to hear that it was a meaningful thing also for you because, you know, so let me just tell you all about Edward and British Vogue. Since you invited me to be on the cover of British Vogue in 2018, for those who might not know that you are the first male, first black editor-in-chief of British Vogue, now in your fifth year at the helm, Time Magazine called you the most powerful black man sitting at the intersection of fashion and media, the most powerful black man sitting at the intersection of fashion and media. That's what Time said about you. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. And you actually have changed the way people see fashion and integrate fashion into our worldly way of being with your influence over all the European Vogue magazines, influence and power there, and especially with British Vogue. Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break. No two travelers are exactly alike. 
And that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies can't get enough of Texas' world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. There's a wonderful hymn, Edward. I don't know if you all knew about it in London, but over here there is an American Black spiritual that says, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. For my journey now, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Okay, so I'm looking at your beautiful new book that is as beautiful as you are, A Visible Man. I want to know how the journey from you being a little boy, invisible to so many people, especially to your father, feeling a sense of repression and oppression, not being able to be who you are, how that journey to a visible man actually happened. How do you explain that? I I mean, it's, it's a really long story. For me, I think people look at myself, look at you, and they think we've always been here. Yeah. Think we've always been successful. But I really grew up sort of in, in, you know, in an African town, a coastal town on a military base with a father who was so sort of dictatorial and so tough. And, you know, I was one of six kids. 
And of course, I was the, the quiet one. I was the one who loved to draw. I was always with my mother. And I felt very protected by my mother. And my father and I had a quite a tough relationship in the sense... He could see you with the sensitive one. I think he could. He could. And, and he did not drawing. want a sensitive one son. He did not want a sensitive one. No, they were all supposed to be playing football, but not really, but being tough boys. I didn't even know how sensitive I was until years later. But I remember always being around my mother and her friends, all shapes, all sizes, all colors. I mean, everything you see in British Vogue today, just being around the most beautiful women who sometimes forgot I was there, you know, they were all sewing. So I'll be, I literally got an insight into women and how women think from a very young age, you know, and then they'll realize I'm men and they'll send me off to go buy something. So that was then, then we had to leave Ghana, you know, there was a coup, a military coup, and my dad would have been assassinated, a few relatives were. So we initially left what was a middle-class life, you could call you could call it. Mm-hmm to England, and it was a coming to America moment. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never seen white people, I mean, I've seen a few white people in Ghana, you know, and they were always so sweet and we love their accents. But to arrive in the country, and I remember saying to my brothers and sisters, oh my God, everyone's white. And that was a surprise to you. It was a surprise to me because I didn't grow up in the West, you know, yes. I grew up in, a place where everybody was predominantly the same color as me. Yeah. So I, I remember going to school and being made fun of because I was, you know, I was very skinny and I had an accent. Um, I was 13 years old and it was really tough. And I'd go home and I'd be, you know, in, in Ghana, in Africa, you know, African food, my mother's friends, African languages, and then go out and have to be really an English person. So this duality has always stayed with me. You know, the idea of not belonging, but belonging, you know, the idea of being myself, but, you know, code switching. I mean, all these things you learn from a very young age, you know. And you write on page 17, you say, I loved glamour and women and their style and was drawn to them instinctively. What did you understand, or maybe it wasn't even understanding, but feel especially around all of this black female beauty at such a tender age? All I remember is being young and like I said, seeing all my aunts and my mother's friends and cousins, all different shapes, sizes, different skin tones, all beautiful, you know, and I'll spend hours fitting living to their clothes and just being mesmerized by the idea of black beauty. Like I said, I grew up in a country initially that was just black people everywhere. So the idea of black not being beautiful was very alien to me. Right. So alien until I got to England and realized, oh my God, things are different. There's another way of being in the world yes. for black people. You know, your, your upbringing reminds me of my dearly beloved friend, Sidney Poitier, who grew up on Cat Island, never even saw a mirror Incredible. until he was 10 years old, didn't mm-hmm. even know what he looked like, was only around black people. So when that happens, and I think this is really probably interesting for white people to even think yes. about, because when you're used to being the dominant race, you're used to seeing yourself everywhere, you don't even think about what it means not to see somebody <laughs> who looks like yeah. you. But it changes the way 
you identify with your whole human self. So yes. race in the is not even a part of your upbringing. You don't even know no. that you're supposed to be. Nobody has to do a song called I'm Black and I'm Proud for You. Yeah. James Brown was other, not necessary. Right? Yes. Because, <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 I remember, I remember getting to London and within the first few months realizing, oh my God, we're, we're seen as different. The names I was being called, being told to go back home. I mean, I'm like, home. I mean, my dad wouldn't even allow me to leave our, our, our flat, as we call it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. In those moments that I realized, my God, you can be invisible in another land. You can be seen as, you know, nobody or, and I hate that word, but you can be seen as a nothing. And it was the first time I realized that in my life. But, and I decided, you know what? I was going to change that. I was going to change that. I was not going to be invisible. Do you remember your first encounter with someone trying to make you feel invisible or one of the major encounters. You wouldn't remember the first or, or maybe you would, but do you remember when that feeling of, oh, I get it. I don't matter to you. Yes. That's really I, what it is. I don't matter. To I you. don't matter to you. I remember, you know, when I talk about the book when, you know, I, I was spotted to be a model three years after having been in England when I was 16. And so excited, and I was in Paris, um, you know, the big city. Mm-hmm. And I was in Place Vendôme, you know, where all the jewelry stores are. And I'm f- really feeling myself, Oprah. I've arrived, the little African boys in Paris. And two policemen approached me and literally asked for my passport. And thank God I had my passport in my bag. And they were so horrible to me. I remember being in tears. I remember thinking, oh, my God, no matter what I do in my life, I will always be othered. I will always be the other. Mm-hmm. That was a really, really pivotal moment for me. You know, there, there were, yes, like you said, there were a few before. But that moment really stuck with me, you know, that I didn't matter, that I shouldn't be where I was. I shouldn't be in Place Vendôme, you know, amongst all those beautiful stores. You know, I love beauty. but um, yes. I know you love beauty. <laughs> that in itself is such a beautiful declaration. I love beauty. You know, I believe, of course, you and I have talked about this so many times about the divine. I certainly believe in divine moments that change the trajectory of our lives. And I believe, just as that song wouldn't take nothing for my journey, because everything that happened particularly with you as a young boy, and I can see that in reading Visible Man, everything that happened shaped you to be the man that you are now. And so one of those divine moments, of course, came when you were just 16 and riding the tube, as they call it, in London. Tell us what happened. So I was was going to college. I didn't have any money. My mother gave me a little book. We had these little bank booklets that you have in England run to the bank, got on the train, and there was a man staring at me. And it felt really strange. I've never, you know, I'd thrown away my glasses and my afro, and I got contact lenses. And this man kept staring at me, station after station. And eventually, he got up and gave me his card. And he said, you know, he told me his name was Simon Foxton. And I later found out that he was one of the eminent stylists, the most prolific stylist in, in England. And he asked if I would model for him. And I went home, and what did Mama say? No. 
But that moment, this man literally changed my life. And I don't know what, whether you call it faith. I don't, know, I don't know what you call it. Eventually, you know, I wore Mama down and Mama called him. And before I knew it, I was on a photo shoot. And that led to sort of a brief modeling career. But that moment really changed my life. Had you ever thought of yourself as the kind of face or body or persona that could model? Had that ever entered your consciousness? No, no, I was I was too skinny. I was too dark. You know, I wasn't the look of the moment. You know, I mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, pale skinned. So basically when he asked if I wanted to be a model, I thought he was kidding. I thought he was, you know, I was tall. I thought, you know, I knew I was tall. Yeah. But I thought he was kidding. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until two weeks later I was spotted again, this time by a model agent from an agency called Dolphin. I thought, I'm, I must have an interesting look. But it was an interesting time in London. It was the you know, late 80s. The world was opening up. The idea of modeling was changing. You know, Black was beautiful. Asian was beautiful. So I think the timing was also perfect. But yes. I, no, I didn't think I could ever. My brother Luther was a handsome one, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that happens in families, you know, where it gets the label. You're the smart one. You're the sensitive one. You're the handsome one. You're the one that can cook. Yes. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. So at 18, this is what's so astonishing when I read Invisible Man that at 18, you become the youngest fashion director at a magazine in history at that time. And what inside you at the time said to you, I can step into this role and this responsibility? Did you think you could, or were you really kind of faking it until you made it? Oprah, I mean, I knew I loved fashion and I knew I loved writing and I knew, I didn't think I could do it. I felt like an imposter. You know, you talk about imposter syndrome. There I was working morning, till midnight, writing, um, styling, doing the shopping pages, talking to photographers, but still feeling like, oh my God, I I shouldn't be here. And this feeling doesn't really leave you. It it took me a long time to really acknowledge the fact that I belonged where I was. And, you know, the magazine was successful, getting more and more successful. But that feeling of being an imposter never left. And also when you're young, when, you know, when you're young and you, you, you're in a role, you want to please, you don't know how to say no. You know, I learned all this on the job over years and years. So it was tough. It was tough. But I also knew there was something inside propelling me. And I can't, I can't, I don't, I can't, I can't say what that was. You write about your journey of self-acceptance as a gay man. You write this on page 104, Invisible Man. 
you say, when you grow up gay in a world primed to detest you, you often have to grow up twice. Yes. I, I, I was so struck by that. Once when you leave home, where more often than not, it was your being gay that made you leave. Yeah. And then a second time, when you find the gay community and discover a whole new set of rules <laughs> and codes to switch in and out of. I want you to expand on that because you've had to navigate multiple identities in your life. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, first of all, I was always somebody in search of a home. You know, we, had, we left our home in Africa. Then I had to leave home because I was thrown out. And I thought, there I am going to be welcomed by the gay community. And then you enter this community and realize that there are all these derogatory words that they use to describe. You know, if, if you're a white man who liked black man, you're a dinch queen. If you're a you know, white man who liked an Indian man, you know, there was something called a curry queen. I mean, these words I've never heard before. And I just thought to myself, I wasn't going to be one of those. I wasn't going to be a stereotype. So I made sure I surrounded myself with people like myself who were seeking a, seeking a family, but not necessarily there to be someone's puppet or someone's... Label. Someone's label, really. And yes. that was really tough navigating at such a young age. And do you think that still is the way it is for young people who are coming out today? Or was that a part of the times of the 80s when people were still trying to, I mean, I remember doing shows in the 80s and just having people on who were gay. And I remember just recently something went viral where this woman was telling me that I was going to go to hell and I was such a nice person, but I was going to go to hell for talking to homosexuals. <laughs> you know? So the times in the 80s, people now, now young people can't even believe that that is how yes. people yes. treated gay people and the idea of coming out. I remember, you know, this whole coming out phase and every, all my friends were so scared and, oh my God, will, will your family accept you or not? And sometimes people left home and didn't even give their families the chance to reject them. I talked to my young nephew, it's like, I don't need to come out. He's like, straight people don't come out, why do I need to come out? So the times have changed. People are non-binary now. People have different pronouns. None of yes. us existed. You know, when I was growing up, you were either gay or you were straight or, or bisexual. And that's what you were labeled as. So I think it's really great today that a whole new generation says we don't want to be labeled. We're fluid. Absolutely. That's what that word came fluid. from, right? Fluid. <laughs> I think it's interesting. In the very beginning of the book, you write about how you were not convinced to do the book at first, because I think a book is such a sacred thing. You and I have talked about this. It is your sacred offering to the world of your life. You, you say in the beginning of the book that you did this for the young people because you wanted them to know how it is and how it was. What is it you most wanted them to know? I want them to know that there's always a journey behind a person. You know, I mean, when people see me, they see my position, they hear my accent, they think I'm from a country house, a country manor in, in England. But I wanted them to see the struggles, not just the highs, you know, the lows. I wanted them to know that it is possible, no matter how many people tell you you can't, 
it is possible. And there are ways of navigating whatever industry you're in by trying to be as honest to yourself as you can and as true to yourself and your principles. And it's not always easy, but I wanted them to know that we're here to support them. I'm there to support them, you know, like you are. Doesn't it always boil down to following your truth? Doesn't it, in the end, isn't it always just about being true to yourself? 100%. I mean, people say to me, oh my God, why are you so fearless? Aren't you scared of what people are going to think about the book? Aren't you scared of what people are going to think about you? I said, I said, I lost everything when I was 12 years old. We lost our home. We had to flee. I wasn't supposed to be sitting here talking to Oprah today. I wasn't supposed to be sitting here as editor of Vogue. So everything that happens for me is a plus. And that's why I'm able to see the world, you know, in such in, in, in a beautiful way, no matter the dark things that happen, because I wasn't supposed to be here. That's incredible. You know, also what I think is important and why Visible Man is such an important book for young people to read is that what we see on the cover of Vogue, the flash, the fame, the glamour, the joy, the beauty, all of that, so much, as you just said, goes into the journey. There was a time that getting to this point in your life, you were actually soul sick. I love the way you describe it. You say, there you were working with the biggest names in high fashion. You were flying all over the world, five-star hotels, what most of us imagine to be an incredible dream life. But inside you say you were soul sick and on a path of self-destruction. You hit rock bottom the night before you were leave. Just the night before you were supposed to leave for Milan. Not to, to start with Dolce Gabbana show. With, with Dolce Gabbana. <laughs> Tell us what happened. I mean, I remember, I, talking about soul sick, I mean, you know, I was brought up to think you have to work twice as hard even if you're sick, keep going. This is what I learned from my family. Whatever's going on in life, you have to work. Keep going. And so through, through good health, through bad health, I've worked. And I'd worked, and thank God I had a great career, but I'd worked so much that I would be partying and still show up to work. God forbid anything wrong happened at work. It didn't matter what happened in my life. And I remember this one moment, you know, I got a big contract with Dolce Gabbana, you know, early 2000s, the hot designers of the time. And um, I have a party at my house. I have all these parties after work. And I was in my 20s. And I remember Oprah coming home to, to go to style a show the next day. And I couldn't find my passport. And what did I do? I'm like, okay, I have to go to the embassy to get a new passport. Plus, I've got my visa in it, so let me. I need to, you know, go to the American Embassy. I walked to the American Embassy with a bottle of vodka in my back pocket, thinking there was nothing wrong. <laughs> and, when, and when the woman, when the woman said, first of all, you're in the wrong place for your passport. You should be in the British Embassy, but you're not getting any kind of visa. That was the moment I decided, you know, in my 20s, I was like, life had to change. I was so sick. I couldn't party anymore. All those people, I was so lonely. You know, they say you can be surrounded by 100 people in a room and still feel so lonely. Hmm. And that was me every day. But work was always great. Yes, absolutely. Because that is where you found your value. That is where yes. you saw 
yourself reflected in your own expression. You know, so you quit drinking, you tell us Invisible Man, that you quit drinking alcohol cold turkey and later joined AA. What did you discover was at the root of your struggle? What was at the root of that? I realized when I got to AA that I love the idea of fellowship, that I love the idea of sort of talking to people about my problems. Normally I'd, I'd, I'd keep everything inside. Normally I was very good at that. You know, as you talk about, we talk about code switching, but what I learned about AA was really helping others and not expecting necessarily anything back in return. You know, the fashion industry, I do this for you, you do that for me. Nothing like that existed in AA. People looked at me and appreciated me for me. And I'll do service with someone who was homeless and we'll be there together, you know, getting better together. And it was the first time I felt a sense of family that I had from when I was growing up. Wow. A sense of belonging. At AA. Yeah, and it didn't matter what country I was in, I would just find a meeting. And there I was. But I didn't realize that I was looking for that connection, connection to people. So that's really what AA sort of gave me, as well as sort of teaching me how to sort of have boundaries with mm-hmm, people. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't have any boundaries before. You know, but taught me about boundaries as well, and just how to how to lead a, a life that wasn't always at full speed and full steam. I mean, that didn't stop, but at least I could do I could work and still lead a healthy life outside of that. And I joined you know, I joined with AA when I was thirty. So wow, I was young. Young. There's so much in the book we cannot fit into this conversation, but I want to ask about your health because you're, you're pretty candid about it. You face several painful difficulties born with the sickle cell trait that you suffer from. Do you still have the uh, tinnitus ringing in the ear? Yes. So basically I have, you know, I was born with sickle cell trait as well as thalassemia. So that's a double whammy where, you know, you're always in pain, you're having a crisis. Then, and then there, your retinas actually began to detach also. My retinas detached four times. My eye is really what I need to survive. It's everything to me, apart from the fact that I, all the beauty that I love. And my eye detached four times. Wow. You wrote, if I couldn't see, I couldn't work. Without my vision, what am I? What am I? Would I become as invisible to the world as the world would become for me? So I want to know, what did your retinas detaching four times? First of all, explain to us what that even I mean, feels like or is like. But I mean, what did it teach you about the essence of who you are? Well, I mean, when I think, talk about this now, um, I still feel scared in a way. You know, the retina... Mm-hmm. When your retina detaches, you know, it detaches from the back of your eye and a liquid sort of comes through the retina and you, you, you're supposed to get to a doctor in 48 hours or you go blind. There were so many doctors trying to laser it, the tears back together, and eventually the eyes just detached. And thank God I got to a doctor in London and performed the operation, the first operation. But after every operation, there's something called a bubble that they put in your eye, and then I have to face down. Oprah, can you imagine three weeks at a time facing down in the darkness, praying to God that I wouldn't lose my vision and all the pressure on the other eye? Because, you know, when you... Re- of course, what happens, you, you, you go into this whole sort of a downward spiral of reading what happens. 
And when, if you're the other eye goes, I can think I'm going to go blind, you know, then eventually I was okay. Then it happened again. And it happened again. And it happened again. And it happened again. And at this point, I thought, I thought that this must be something that I deserve, that I must have done something to my higher power to deserve this. And it was the darkest moment of my life. And even today, every morning when I wake up, Oprah, I check the eye to make sure I can still see through it. I, <laughs> I mean, and I'm able to help people who have sort of, every time someone has an eye problem or whatever they call me. But those moments in darkness with my held down was definitely some of the darkest of my life. And I didn't work for almost two years and nobody knew that. And I thought I was, I, I, I was going to lose the other eye. I was never coming back. And the other eye started and thank God I had a great doctor who caught it and sort of lasered it so that it stopped advancing. But it's down to sickle cell trait, I found out later. Oh, yes. that is why I was going to ask, why does this keep yes. happening? Yes. And every yeah. day I'm still, I still pray that, you know, the, the other eye stays good. And So do you not have vision in one eye? I mean, I, I don't have vision in one eye. It's, it's sort of um, distorted. I can sort of see through it, but I have vision in the other. Yes. So, so every day that's, but isn't it you amazing? Are, <laughs> you are creating all of these unimaginably fan I mean fantastical covers you're doing all of this with one eye but maybe that's a let's say you know with one eye and a lot of imagination because when you can't see you know you're given something else and I can imagine when I close my I can imagine the most beautiful the most incredible because I can't physically see so well oh wow Edward. that this goes is, back to you know a, a special power special being who definitely looks after us. Yes, yes. Well, when you took the helm of British Vogue, first of all, tell me how you got that call. So I remember I was in Paris during what we call the Pret-a-Porter, which is the ready-to-wear shows where designers yeah. show their collections. And um, I was a very busy stylist. First of all, I got an email from Jonathan Newhouse, a really great friend of mine who owns Condé Nast, also on Vogue. And so the editor for British Vogue is leaving. And I need you to come for an interview. But of course, I thought, I'm not, why am I even going to go? I'm not going to get this job. This job is not meant for people like me. I'm black. I'm gay. I come from a background that can only really be described as poor. I've made something of myself. And the idea of Vogue was always white, well-brought-up young women. Yeah. From wealthy families. You know what? I went to the meeting and I was very honest. They asked me what I thought of the magazine. And I, I said, you know, the world I live in, the world we live in now, a world that embraces women of all colors, women of all shapes, ages, religion, sexuality. I don't see that in the magazine. Because, again, I thought I'm never going to get this job. So I might as well be honest. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to help you all out. I'm going to help you all out. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I'm going to help you all out. I'll just tell you about yourself. I'm going to tell you about yourself. Okay. What I saw in the world was not reflected in the magazine. And I said, if there was a chance that I was going to take over this magazine, I would definitely make it welcoming and inclusive and a magazine where people can see themselves reflected. Because I always say, if you can see it, you can be it. You know, growing up, I had 
one person to look up to in the fashion industry who was Andre Leontale, and there was nobody else. And I wanted people to really see themselves in the magazine, no matter, no matter what background they were from. So for me, that was not even a mission. It was just something that needed to be done. Do you credit him with paving the way for you? I credit Andre because he was the only one who was there in this world of high fashion, the only one who had been in those conversations, had been in those rooms. And he was always so kind to me. He was always so kind to me. I mean, he's known me since I was so young, and he would always have a kind word for me. You know, we, we, we weren't the best of friends, but he would always have a kind word for me. This is what he said about you. He said, Edward speaks for the unsung heroes, particularly those outside the privileged white world that Vogue originally stood for. He has changed what a fashion magazine should be. Oh, wow. Time 2020, he said that. I, I miss him a lot. And he would always yes. encourage me. Oprah, I, did, I, I didn't even know what career I would have. You know, I was good at ID and I was good at styling, but he always encouraged me and he always like, made me feel I could do better, made me feel I could get somewhere. And, you know, we, we, we've lost a great human being as well as one of the best editors ever lived. Not black, one of the best editors ever lived. Well, as I said, when you took the helm of British Vogue, you had an intention, and that was to disrupt the status quo. <laughs> and my God, <laughs> have you disrupted the status quo? When you look back now, because in five years, you have featured more black models than in the entire history of the magazine. One of my favorite covers was, uh, was the frontline workers during the yes, pandemic, real life people on the cover, which nobody puts real life people on the cover and published the oldest cover model, Dame Judi Dench. She was 85 at the time. <laughs> so first of all, I want to ask you, have you disrupted the status quo as you want it to do? Have you achieved that intention? I mean, for me, I I look around and I look at other magazines now and you see black models, you see women of all shapes and sizes, you see and religions and hijabs, and I'm proud because that was not the case when I started five years ago. I'm so proud that now there's not even a conversation. But I remember when I got the job, I said, I'm going to, it wasn't even to disrupt the status quo, I said, I'm going to show the world as I saw it. And if I was going to get fired, I'd rather get fired for doing something I believed than try and create a wishy-washy version of somebody else's vote. So I was ready to get fired. And like I said, Oprah, Oprah it goes back to my childhood. I'd lost everything. So what was I'd been fired from so many jobs, so this would have been no different. But the world was changing, and the world was willing to accept what beauty meant. And I think, you know, thank God I was there at the, at, at the right time to sort of um, help it along. What beauty meant and means in all of its forms. I mean, one of the most profound statements that you shared here with us today and also that comes through so clearly in Visible Man is that you love beauty in all, in all its forms. Its yes. You do. Yes. You it's love not beauty. That, it's not that one sort of you have to be a certain weight and look a certain way. It, it, it's it beauty in all its shapes and stuff. From, from being curvy. You know, I remember when COVID happened 
and they said everybody over 60 had to stay in. And I could see a certain reaction to people over 60. And I thought, I'm putting Dame Judy on the cover just to remind everybody there's beauty in age. So for Thank me, you. I, <laughs> no, no, Thank you. But, you know, whether it's age, shape, like I said, religion, socioeconomic background, I see the beauty in that because that's what I saw growing up. That's mm. what I saw growing up. Are you like that also in your surroundings? Like you like to be surrounded by beautiful things, a particular fabric? A I mean, particular you'll be surprised sheets. when you come to my house. Well, my house is quite, it's quite minimal, sort of, sort of white sofas. It's big windows. And what I have on the walls are pictures that mean a lot to me, pictures that I've probably worked on from people I, I really love. And very spare. I get that from my dad, actually, who never liked to clutter so much because I just wanted to be able to think. So my house, you'll be surprised, is actually quite pared down. But I mm-hmm. love plants. So it's surrounded, plants everywhere. Plants and lots mm-hmm. of um, art okay. on the wall. All right. I, I believe that. But also surrounded by beauty. Oh, surrounded by beauty, 100%. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book is how your mother's death cracked you open and how it opened the door between you and your father. It's remarkable how that can happen sometimes. Do you think he has now fully accepted and celebrates you for who you are now? I mean, you know, he was very happy when I got the OBE. For, for those who don't know, it's sort of a, a title you're given in England by the Queen. He was very proud of that. Um, we got closer when my mother died, but oh, brother, there's always something in the back of my mind, and it comes from being a sensitive child. Like, if I wasn't as successful as I am, would he still be as proud? And I think that's something yeah. that I will have to deal with for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Like, would he still be as proud if I wasn't Edward at Vogue? But, you know, we definitely have a better relationship now than we ever had. Yeah. I think all of us who grew up with parents who didn't see us, I felt that way about my mother. And, you know, after I became Oprah Winfrey with a capital O, she actually said to me, oh, we never had much, but we sure had love. And I was like, I don't know what house you're talking about. (laughs) But, and I definitely do believe And not only do I believe, but I accept the fact that had I not been Oprah with a capital O, we would never have, she she wouldn't have cared as much about about me, you know? She cared about Oprah with the capital O. So funny because I remember the first time I I started sort of appearing in like the Times of London, I'd hear from my family, oh my God, your dad is so proud. And even at the OBE ceremony, everyone said, oh, your dad is so proud, but never to me. Right. So... We still have a bit of a way to go, but you know, he's definitely mellowed from the from the man who used to terrorize me. Mm. <laughs> so when you say you still have a ways to go, is that something you intend to resolve or you're just gonna let life do what it does? I think I'll let life do what it does, but what has happened is, you know, we're seeing each other more, we're sort of talking more than we did. For years we didn't speak. And you know, I know I'll be there for him whenever he needs something, I'm there. And, you know, yes, let's see what, you know, life brings. Yes. You know what is wonderful? A lot of companies, especially after George Floyd started talking about industry, started talking about, you know, diversity and inclusion. Yes. They hired 
D and E and I a person, but still have predominantly white executives at the top. What do you want to say to business leaders about how to put words into action and real change as you have done at Vogue? For me, you know, when George Floyd died, that was a real turning point. And I saw, you know, the black stickers on everyone's phones and and I got all the calls from all these companies. And I just said, for me, putting a black sticker on a phone wasn't enough. Using black models in your shows, not enough. Diverse voices are better than a singular voice. So you need to employ behind the scenes, black yeah. people, brown people, more women, et cetera, et cetera. You need to employ more people because that's the way that we can really progress. So it's not enough just having someone in your, Naomi Campbell, in your advertising campaign. You need someone behind the scenes to say, you know, this is a good way to go. That's not a good way to go. So many companies have made so many mistakes when it comes to race. So I think really the way forward is to keep employing. And I always say that it's, it's not enough getting interns. Everyone's like, oh, we have so many interns. No, we need people on all levels. We need people on the Making decisions. Level. Yes. And executives. We need yes. people, black people, brown people, on all the different levels. That's how we really change an industry. You write about your working relationship with Anna Wintour, and I know everybody was waiting to see what you were going <laughs> to say in the book about... Yeah. Anna, I thought you were so gracious writing about the legendary editor-in-chief of American Vogue. On page 189, you say, of course, everyone is always fascinated by Anna. She is, I thought this was a great word, she's unsentimental, but if she respects you, she listens to you. Did you did you have to search for the word unsentimental? Because you're like, what is what is she? That's a perfect description, actually. <laughs> no, because I because I've done Anna for so long, and she doesn't really, you know, rest on sentiment. She just wants to move ahead. Even when I used to when I used to work for her in the 2000s, when a story didn't work out or whatever, and I'd be so upset, whatever, it would just be like, let's just move on, let's just move on, let's move ahead. And I know, you know, everyone, people think we don't get on, but we work well together. Um, we've known each other for a very long time. And yes, the word unsentimental, you know, she doesn't rely on sentiment. Yeah. There are rumors, you know this, that you will be her successor. Do you want that job? I mean, I'm happy where I am. I'm happy sitting here talking to you about my life and my book. I'm happy with the job I'm doing in Europe. And with the way I've been brought up, anything is possible. Anything is possible. Life can take me left, can take me any direction. So, you know, I'm not focused on getting anybody's job, but being at the right place in the world at the right time to help me grow. Speaking of being in the right place at the right time, you just work with Beyonce on that stunning uh, July British Vogue cover. You were the one of the first persons to hear the new album, Renaissance, which has been now become the soundtrack to our summer. It's incredible, uh, isn't it? Yes, yes. What did you two want to express in those photos? Joy, creativity. It was it was one of those shoots that wasn't so weighed down with intellectual aspirations, and it was just joy. It was about celebrating a community, a disco community, a community that a gay community, a community that I could relate to, people who wanted to dance, people of 
you know, all races and colors. So the picture's really about having fun. Really, we went in saying we're going to create pictures that are fun and in doing so, hopefully create something new. And really, that, it was the easiest shoot I've ever done. Oh, <laughs> it was, we held our hands, we did our prayer circle. Where did you shoot that? Where did you shoot it? We shot it in LA, in mm. LA. And she's so incredible. She's such a wonderful human being, so kind. And we had the best day. You know, you hear all these stories about, you know, uh, She's in another room. Nobody's allowed to go. She was just there, you know, next picture. And we were, it was just joyful. You can tell she said that she's in a very joyful sort of stage in her life. Hence this incredible album that I haven't stopped playing either. Yes. It's the soundtrack wow. for our summer. I know. Okay. I only take exception to, it couldn't have been the easiest shoot because ours was the easiest shoot. Ours was definitely the easiest. Yours was definitely easy. The Empress shoot was definitely there. There was no horse involved. (laughs) I remember your shoe. We tried all the wigs on every wig you love, but you did dictate which was the. I will never forget because I wanted to do like a huge Empress wig. And you said, you know, I like this mid. Do you remember? Yeah, Yeah, let's tone it down a little bit. Yes. So we toned it down, down and all these designers. Because normally when we shoot covers, I don't tell them who's on the cover. I'm like, you're making these clothes. But I had a couple of designers I had to tell, and they they fell off the chair. They were so excited. Because you uh, don't know what you, you broke half of us up. You know, I'll come home, my you know, my parents will be home and I'll switch on the TV and there you are. So you were like, uh, <laughs> you, broke, you broke me up. So, yeah. I, well, I did well. May I just say, I raised you well. Um, Nina Simone famously said that an artist's duty is to reflect the times. What do you believe is your duty today in reflecting the times? Yeah, my duty today is to reflect the times we live in. As I, you know, whether it's about inclusivity, you know, whether it's about what's going on out in the world. Like when I, you know, I remember when we were in lockdown and everybody said, how are you going to pr- produce magazines? How are magazines going to survive these four months? And I just thought, you know what? Let's do what we always did at ID Magazine when we had no money. Let's let's be creative. So we brought out the Judy Dench issue. And then when I looked out my window and saw all these, I think we spoke about it, all these essential workers who, whenever they left their house, equaled death to a lot of people. Yes. We have to celebrate these people. And then we did a whole sort of series on landscapes. So you could just look and take a a deep breath from what we were going through, which was, you know, being stuck at home. And then George Floyd happened. And for me, the issue, the hope issue had to feature 30 activists, people who were putting their lives on the line just for us. So for me, all these things reflect the times we live in. And when you go back, stories I've done, whether it's about plastic surgery or Hollywood, it's about the times we live in. For me, that's when art is art, not just Mm. for art's sake. A Visible Man is available anywhere you buy books. What does it feel like releasing it into the world? I mean, in the beginning, I was holding on to it. I mean, the deadlines, I I didn't want to let it go. But turning 50, I wanted to own it. I wanted to own it. I wanted to own my life. You know, I got married when I was 50, you know. Yeah, on the day that like, you turned 50. I was like, yeah, I have nothing to be ashamed of. Here, here I am. This is who I am. 
I told you that when you turned 50, the thing that Maya told me when I turned 50 is Mm -hmm. that she said, baby, the 50s are everything you've been meaning to be and are meant to be. So what do you what do you think that means for you? What does that mean? For me, it's letting go of a lot of my insecurities, this imposter syndrome of not being good enough, despite the work saying I was, you know, of being able to reconcile with the people I'm sort of falling out with, just trying to be a whole person, a more understanding person, a more forgiving person, a more loving person. I think that's what my 50s means. And also making those boundaries even tighter. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. That's what yeah. you learn, right. And believing that there's some, there's a hand in my luck. You know, I've worked hard, but I've also had such lucky breaks from somewhere. Do you believe, earlier you called it a higher power. Do you believe in God, a universal force or spiritual consciousness? If so, how does that show up for you? And what tells you it's there? I mean, it's there in the morning when I meditate. It's there when I meet someone who needs help or who helps me. It's there in every person you touch and who touches you. I don't know. It's, 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 I'm gonna, you're going to laugh at me, but it's in the trees even. Well, you know I know it's in the trees. It's in the fact that I can look out there and see, oh, my God, there's something that's inspiration. It's inspiring to me. It's, it's, it's all around me, really. What was your greatest awakening, do you think, Edward? My greatest awakening? <laughs> I think my greatest awakening was maybe life's not as bad as you think it is. Mm-hmm. And it's also okay to take a break. It's okay to take the foot off the pedal. When do you think your faith was most tested? Do you think it was during the retina, the, the, the retina situation? When my retina detached and my mother died at the same time. I mean, I thought, I thought, here I was, what am I going to do? If I'm blind, would I even want to carry on? What's the, my fate was really tested. I remember calling a friend of mine and literally saying, and, and you know, the fashion industry is so cyclical. It's so I said, I said, I think my career's done because nobody was calling. I'm going to be very honest. There weren't any phone calls to say, how are you doing? A few people called, a few close friends called, and my fate was really tested then. But look at me now. And look at you now. So how did you get back on track? Because that would be a time when you lose your internal compass and feel like you've sort of been abandoned by God, by the universe. Your mother's gone, all of that. You're going blind, you think. How did you get back on track? Or did you just hold on? When I got my vision back and grieved my mother, I got the call to go work at British Vogue not not long after that. How can you explain that, Oprah? And at that point, I'd been through my darkest hours, the the, the scariest things that could ever happen. I just happened. I was going to go blind and I lost my mother, someone I loved dearly. So from here on, everything was going to be as I wanted it to be. No more apologies. And that's really what led me to where I am today. Going through that dark period got me here today. Ah, uh, that's that's why that song is so powerful. Yeah. Wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. And I'm going to go record it. Wouldn't take nothing. Listen, I will say you are my friend. I adore you. And I will tell the world why I adore Edward so much. Because in spite of the fact, not even in spite, because we all know he is 
this leader in the fashion world, in the industry, has changed what the status quo is in all that profession. You are the kindest, most gracious, most sensitively aware of other people's feelings, human oh. beings I've ever encountered. I could cry just talking about you. You're the same. You're the same. No, but I'm not in fashion. So I am so I'm one of those people who's intimidated by fashion and the fashion <laughs> industry. Be. I am very much intimidated. I try to leave you all alone because you'll have your own world. It, it, really is, it is quite an industry. It is quite a world. And I try to leave that alone and all of y'all over there. But uh, because it's just, I just feel like almost everybody else I've encountered in the fashion world wants you to think you don't belong in their world. Yes. yes. That, that's the whole idea. That is to make you think that you don't belong in that world. And so I'm like, okay, I know I don't belong in that world. So y'all can have that world. But, yeah, but you, you don't need, you don't need those people. You don't need yeah. those people. Well, you know, I try to be inclusive of everybody, but I, I will tell you, I mean, if you're asking what intimidates me, it's that world, but you don't intimidate me. And from the very first shoot we did for W Magazine, I, I know. Just thought, wow, that is a very... <laughs> That's very interesting. We put you in a in a little tiny motel almost. In a motel. It was the strangest <laughs> shoot I've ever had. I will have to say that. You're like, okay, I thought I'm I was a, I, I thought I was in a homeless hotel. You're calling this fashion. But I also walked away thinking, wow, that is the kindest fashion person I've ever encountered. And you still have maintained that. Why? What is it about you that didn't succumb to that? Because you know what I'm talking about with that world, y'all are. I mean, yeah. the fashion industry can be very brutal. Hoity you know, and toity. Yeah, hoity toity. It's based on trends, change, new, newness, newness, newness. But even though I talk about sort of being in this industry for, from a young age and being sort of scared, I've grown up in it 16 to 50, that's 34 years of an industry that feels like home to me, but also being able to retain myself and be around people I want to be around. If I don't want to be around you, no, I'm not going to be around you. But just finding like-minded people to sort of work with. Kindness, I love kind people. My mother was very kind, you know, my grandmas were very kind. So I, I, I go towards that. And anybody who's known me from 16 to now, I'm, I'm the same person. Yeah. I'm the same person. I look for goodness in people. I can feel that. When is the final question? When is the last time you were filled with awe? Last time I was filled with awe. My God, I was. <laughs> I'm not just saying this because it's you, but when we. We were shooting for W Magazine, and the whole idea of the shoot was to sort of get all these incredible performers. Best Performances was called The Portfolio. Yes. And get all these incredible superstars, yourself included, into this tiny, I, can't, I don't even know what to describe it, like a Betsy, as we call it in England. In America, you call it almost like a, a hotel that was like a shack. And when I heard... Oprah had agreed to do it. I remember when you walked in, I was so nervous. I was so, you looked around, you said, where are we? And I said, well, the character is that you're this incredible, you're this incredible icon. I remember what I said, you're this incredible icon 
but you, you, you just want to be on your own. You, you want a moment to yourself, so you've checked into this hotel that means nothing to anybody. And I don't even know where that came from. My thought was, <laughs> I want to be on my own. I ain't checking in here. <laughs> and this, with one little ill. single bed, you were in awe. You were in awe. Yeah. Well, I'm in awe of you and your life. What do you want the book to do? I want the book to really let young people know that it is possible to change an industry from within by being yourself, by being vocal, not being scared. And I also want people to sort of read it and just know that every life is a journey. And like I said, I didn't just arrive here. I wasn't supposed to be here, you know, from an African town (laughs) in the heart of Africa to here. If I can do it, you know, most people can. It means it can be done. It can be done. It means it can be done. You say at the end of the book, beauty can set us all free if we let it. If you need any more proof of that, here I am. Because Oprah, I wasn't supposed to be here. I keep going back to that. But thank God that all those things that are seen as not right in this world, like I said, you know, they can barely see and he's black and he has some, you know, a poor background. All these things became my superpower. And through it all, through the darkness, through the illness, beauty kept me going. And like I said, Mm. beauty in all its shapes and forms, really, and it still keeps me going. Uh, Thank you so much for helping me, Edward, and helping women around the world, actually. Thank you for having me. See the beauty in ourselves. That's (laughs) what you do with every cover. You help us see the beauty in ourselves, no matter who's on that cover. Yes. Yeah, and thank you all for being so amazing. A visible man. Thank you. I adore you. I adore you. I adore you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, wonderful, darling. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.